Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a surprise challenger for a long-held Brooklyn City Council seat, a gender-based violence activist, and how an artist survived Sandy. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and thanks for joining us today. A quick thought. On Monday, a federal judge, Colleen Culler Cottley, blocked President Trump's attempt to ban people who identify as transgender from serving in the U.S. military. The legality of this latest attempt to legislate discrimination, like with his quote-unquote travel ban, has been in question since the moment the president tweeted his intention to implement the policy, an intention he failed to communicate to anyone at the Pentagon beforehand, by the way. In my view, it never really mattered to Trump whether or not the ban would ever be enforced. While we view these legal losses as harmful to his administration, what his base sees is him trying to protect them and their values, and protect them from the quote-unquote corrupt courts acting out of line with the voters' will. And of course, his voters consider themselves the real Americans. So my question is, for his administration, do these defeats lead to death by a thousand judicial cuts? Or could they actually turn out to be its lifeline? We'll be right back with a candidate in a surprising contest for Brooklyn's 40th council seat, an activist working with survivors of sexual assault trauma, also a survivor herself, and talking to an artist who survived and then thrived after Sandy. But first, a few things. Two Brooklyn-based NYPD detectives, Richard Hall and Eddie Martins, were indicted on Monday on 50 counts, including rape and attempted bribery of an 18-year-old girl they picked up on suspicion of drug possession in Gravesend in September. When the story first broke, the detectives apparently defended their actions to colleagues by saying it was consensual sex, although they had already handcuffed the woman. Innocent until proven guilty. Still, I'm speechless. The Bedford Armory is a story that's got some legs. The City Planning Commission approved the conversion of the giant building on Bedford and Atlantic, you know the one. They said no nearby resident would be directly or indirectly displaced by the project. But the plan for the building, which at one point was promoted as a homeless shelter, has drawn the ire of local politicians who want the development for affordable housing. Right now, the proposed mix is almost 55, 45% market rate to affordable. Developers, of course, prefer a bigger tilt toward market rate housing, saying they need it to subsidize the affordable units. So they're basically saying, come on, sure, it's city-owned land, but we're not doing this as a public service. Where's our profit going to come from? Ah, capitalism. But it's not a done deal. Now it will head to the city council for debate. Then there's this. Kratom. Heard of it? It's a derivative of a tree in the coffee family, a stimulant with some opiate-like properties, a drug or a dietary supplement, depending on who you ask. It's being used as an alternative to opiates and in some cases, a means of treating withdrawal for those trying to kick opiate addiction. Sounds good, but like any new old drug, the DEA, FDA, and Big Pharma are trying to figure out how to classify it, exploit it, and of course, profit from it which means it's not widely available yet, or at least controlled in a way that some might deem safe. But Bushwick Daily tells us that it is available in a couple of cafes in that neighborhood. Reportedly, the only spots in Brooklyn to get it in a made-to-order cup of tea are House of Kava and Brooklyn Kava. We're not advocating for the use, but if you check it out, let us know. Brazenhead, a bar in Carroll Gardens has a trivia night. 
It's a pretty good one with a pretty talented host. In fact, so talented that host Austin Rogers now has another distinction as fifth place all-time Jeopardy champion. He won nearly a half million dollars on the show during a 12-game winning streak in October. Not only was he smart, he was funny. And during his run, he had a question we really like. Once its own city, it joined with a neighbor in 1898. Today, on its own, it would be the fourth most populous city in the U.S. And the answer is... Brooklyn! <laughs> we'll be right back with city council candidate Brian Cunningham. This week, we're covering local elections in a few competitive districts, including the 40th, my district, where incumbent Matthew Eugene, who was on yesterday's show, is facing a surprising challenge. It comes from Brian Cunningham, Reform Party candidate, whom Eugene defeated in the primary. So how's he still alive in the race? He's here to tell us all about that and more. <laughs> Brian, thanks for coming on 112BK. Thank you for having me on the show. It's amazing to be here. It's so lovely to have you. I have to ask, how did you still end up in the race? So um, when we saw back in November um, mm -hmm. that we had four challengers in the race, mm -hmm. we had begun to explore what it would look like um, to have a third party line in case we were unsuccessful in the primaries. Um, and we had looked at our reform party, um, we went on an interview with them, and we got their endorsement. Um, the challenge with some of the other party lines were that they were still deliberating. As you saw, the Working Families Party recently endorsed our campaign as well. Yes. But the endorsement came a little bit too late in terms of ballot printability. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't appear on the ballot line, but we stopped their endorsement. We have the Reform Party's ballot line, and we're lifelong Democrats running on the Reform par Party ticket. So this is actually a very fascinating race in it's many ways. It's super fascinating. And it's a race happening in our district in November, which makes it a lot colder. Right. <laughs> um, but a lot more exciting. I think the energy in the district just feels very right. much alive, if, as you noticed, probably from just walking up and down. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so can I just ask really quickly, yeah. um, one of the things that I saw on your website yeah. was that uh, you are the party or like your campaign is with the new American values. Yeah. Can you explain to me what that means and what makes them new? I think the new American values means that we're looking, you know, a lot of times people talk about the system being broken mm -hmm. um, and that the criminal justice is broken, our housing system is broken. But what we've discovered throughout our campaign and throughout this race is that the system is actually working the way it was intended to work. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while you have these candidates, these leaders, these civil rights leaders, um, people that care enough about our community that care enough to interrupt the system and say right. what's, what's happening isn't normal, it isn't right. working, and we need to reform some of that stuff. So we have a broken um, criminal justice system that right. needs to be reformed where we stop criminalizing people who are mentally ill mm -hmm. and people who are poor. We have a housing system that this includes people who need housing. We give de developers these huge subsidies to provide such small amounts of housing. That mm -hmm. needs to be reformed. So there are a couple of things. Our educational system that doesn't include coding mm -hmm. and doesn't include STEM um, is problematic and needs reform. So there are a couple of things that I think we're trying to do that would make America more inclusive, more diverse, particularly in the face of what's happening nationally and even in the state government. Right. And living in Flatbush, which is where I live, yeah. um, one of the things that I love so much about the area is the diversity. And oh not God. just the diversity as far as like, like race and nationality and things like that, but also diversity of income. There are yeah. a lot of different income levels yeah. like in that area. Yeah. And I'm, you know, the, I live in that neighborhood actually now more and more of like the people I know and friends are moving into that neighborhood and living in that neighborhood. Sure. And one of the things that, you know, a lot of us are concerned about is can this neighborhood thrive and remain 
affordable sure. for people in our buildings yeah. who have lived there since the 80s, the 70s, things like that. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, this district, from the time my mother arrived to this country in 1975 from Jamaica, mm -hmm. has been probably one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the, in the country, quite right. frankly. There are books written about this district. Mm -hmm. um, we have Prosper Leffert's Gardens, we have Flatbush, we have Ditmas Park, mm -hmm. we have um, Kensington. But one of the things we've noticed over the last 10 years um, is that the rents have gone up 80%. Yes. Um, so people who are in the economic um, um, part of our uh, district who aren't making as much money are mm -hmm. being pushed out. But obviously I believe that public policy and stronger rent laws and stronger advocacy on our housing laws can actually make a difference and actually re remain this continuity of diversity, which is so important to the district. We want new visitors. We want new right. members of our community to move in and to feel welcome, but we don't want to displace people who've been there since the 70s and 80s and even before that. We want them to feel like they still have a stake in our community. Uh, we've seen um, the highest number of evictions in the last few years mm -hmm. in our district. We have the highest number of foreclosures, so it's not just renters. Homeowners aren't safe because of high property taxes. Those are things that this campaign is fighting for to make sure we protect right. people that live in our community. Why so much foreclosure and evictions? What's causing that specifically? You know, the foreclosure and evictions are prompted, well, the foreclosure piece is actually because of high property tax. Mm -hmm. What's happened is 421A, which is a state um, law that gives a tax subsidy of 25 years to the developer, is actually given the tax subsidy to the developer, but the building owners and the homeowners are actually seeing their prices on their taxes increase. Why is that? Because someone has to shoulder the tax burden. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to just give a subsidy. You have to make sure that you equally distribute that um, tax. So what we're seeing is a lot of folks who own properties are seeing a high tax subsidy. They wouldn't mind paying that high um, tax subsidy if they were actually seeing more affordable units of housing. Right. But what's happened is we're only seeing 20% and it's based off of a number called AMI, a, a thing called AMI, which right. is average medium income. Well, we really should be looking at community medium incomes and looking at what people in communities make to determine who qualifies for that low income and affordable housing. And what kind of taxes are the developers paying? 25%, if you say you're gonna do affordable housing and yeah. you're gonna provide 20% affordable housing, you get no tax for 25 years. No taxes for 25 no, tax years? Tax abatement for 25 years if you provide 20% of affordable housing. Right now, New York City is in a housing crisis. We have over 60,000 people who are homeless in New York City, over 28,000 families, a number of kids. We have the highest number of kids in shelters coming to school hungry and from faraway locations to get to their zone school. We have a serious issue, and we cannot continue to give developers these subsidies with just providing 20% affordable housing. We have to do more. What do you suggest we do? I think where we have city-owned land, we could do 100% affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Where we have private-owned land, um, we should encourage developers with the subsidy by doing 50, 30, 20. 50% mm -hmm. market because, like you said, we have a very diverse community. We want people to come in our community who make a little bit of money, who can support right. the small business corridors. And we don't want to exclude anybody from coming in our neighborhoods. But we want to do 30% affordable housing, which would cover these new CMIs, community medium incomes, which would mm -hmm. include the community's average medium income. And right. then 20% for low-income people and seniors who are on fixed income and are being priced out of neighborhoods every day. So where are you right now focusing your campaign efforts when it comes to gentrification? Because you know, um, a place that I end up walking through a lot is Ditmas Park. Yeah. And that's where Victorian I see Flavish. Yes, and yeah. that's where I see the signs. That's yeah. where I see the Brian Cunningham um, yard signs. The interesting part about it is Ditmas Park is not where we're, we're having a lot of our support. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of our, um, our our attention. Right. But it certainly is an area that understands the message that housing is a crisis for their neighbors in Flatbush. That's what I love about our community right. is that people in Ditmas Park say, while I may not have be struggling with higher rents, mm -hmm. I struggle with the idea and the moral content 
consciousness of my neighbors not having affordable housing. Right. And again, that's the part that makes our community so beautiful. But when you walk down Prosper Lefferts, mm -hmm. you'll see signs in small businesses with my right. picture in it. And you know, when you go in Flatbush, you'll see people in Flatbush that also have those signs in their apartment building saying that it's our time. Um, right. So I think our, our, our coalition has been so big, so broad, so diverse, mm -hmm. that it's hard to say we have monolithic support, but it's right. all over the place. And I think that's just a testament um, to the kind of campaign we've been running, a very progressive, bold campaign mm -hmm. that is inclusive of everyone's issues and concerns. And should you be elected? What's when, priority? When, when elected. <laughs> What's priority one when um, you show up? I think priority one for us is, um, number one, I've been saying this a lot, I'm a youth, family, and community developer. Mm -hmm. Before I got into government, I got into government 10 years ago, but it was because of the things that I saw with young people in our district. I want to make sure that every single school in our district has an after-school program. Mm -hmm. Right now what's happening is at 3 o'clock, kids are being pushed out of school buildings and pushed onto corners. Will police now have to get them off of corners and into their pla their places? And that sometimes creates a negative interaction with police. There are right. too many young people that read below grade level that could use homework help can right. use additional classes like coding and music and art, things that aren't in our curriculum mm -hmm. to challenge them. But then there's also some time where they can do some flex time and mm -hmm. do some things like play basketball and, and do some other creative things mm -hmm. um, inside of that space. I want to see every single school in our district become an after-school program, a beacon after-school so their parents can also access that space. The second thing is we have to tackle the housing crisis. There's no mm -hmm. way that in a district that where we have 80% increase in rent over the last 10 years, there's no way that where we have um, the highest number of evictions and foreclosures, we can sit on our loins as it pertains to right. housing. And we have to go in a very bold, aggressive plan to begin to connect nonprofit developers to city-owned land mm -hmm. and have them create 100% affordable housing and wrestle with the state legislator and turn in AMIs, which is the average medium income, into CMIs, the community medium incomes, right. to make sure we can provide more housing for people. And the last thing that's really big and bold, I'm gonna start working on it in my first 100 days, but not necessarily get it accomplished, mm -hmm. is actually passing a Medicare for All NYC package which wow. would ensure every single New Yorker with health insurance, no matter income status, wow. employment status, citizenship status, or immigration status. Um, that's something we want to work with a team of economic advisors and medical professionals to see how we can usher that in. San Francisco did it, and we have a bigger budget than them. Well, I think, you know, they're, first of all, thank you so much thank for you. coming on the show. It's exactly what the people need to be hearing right now, is from people who want to be their representatives and what ideas they have. Next, an advocate for survivors of sexual violence who is also a survivor herself. Stay with us. It seems every week there comes a new allegation about a celebrity and or other powerful individual who used his, mostly his, position to sexually assault, harass, or rape someone more vulnerable. Harvey Weinstein, James Toback, Bill O'Reilly, Donald Trump, and the latest, Kevin Spacey. Need I go on? But what about the cases that aren't so high profile? The ones that happen in the shadows or among friends? Where did those individuals go for support and recourse? Here to talk to us about that is Navila Rashid, an activist and co-founder of The Cathartist, an organization right here in Brooklyn dedicated to helping survivors. Navila, thanks for coming on 112BK. Thank you for having me. Can you just really quickly talk to me about the work of The Cathartist and what happens there? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, the Cathartist is a web-based platform. Mm -hmm. And so generally with web-based platforms, it's more like, you know, people talking to one another, getting advice. Mm -hmm. However, Julie and I, because we're both co-founders, we wanted to take a different approach. Mm -hmm. We didn't find it useful to talk to one another as much about our experiences. Mm -hmm. However, our outlet was creative expression. So this is a web-based web platform essentially for folks to come and 
talk about how they're coping and healing and maybe re-experiencing their trauma through their artistic expression. So things like poetry, art, music, dance, anything that really gets the creative juices flowing mm -hmm. so people can kind of become more centered in what they're doing to find a home within themselves, which generally is taken away once you're experiencing sexual violence, for example. Right. And how do you, like, over the years, you've like obviously seen these expressions of art, you've spoken with and worked with other survivors in different capacities. Um, what are some of the like uh, effects? You know what I mean? I think people always think of women who have been assaulted, specifically women, as like being almost like a lifetime movie. You know what I mean? Like they see like this person who is just like broken down and like incapable and their life is over and their life is destroyed. But you know, as a survivor um, as well, that was never my experience. Yeah. And I feel like that's true for a lot of other women as well, is that like their experience post-assault is that life actually does go on. And while they deserve justice, their lives aren't ruined, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy that you shared that. And that's usually the case, right? Mm -hmm. Is, of course, there's so many different things that go along with mental health, emotional health, physical mm -hmm. health, as it pertains to sexual violence as the trauma, right? right? However, your, your life doesn't end. Yes. yes, you're going to experience this for the rest of your life. You're gonna have these memories which you can't necessarily delete, but you're functional to a certain degree and that should be celebrated. Right. The existence of a survivor should be celebrated and I think that should be kind of all of us trying to refocus on that aspect right. of what survivorship really means right. when it comes to sexual violence. Um, and in the wake of a lot of these stories that have come out, you know, one of the things that was almost an immediate response was the hashtag MeToo campaign. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about like your feelings on that and like how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the hashtag itself was started 10 years ago. Right. Right, like by a woman of color. Um, and then it resurfaced again this time and really took a hold via the Hollywood world. Right. Um, I think it's great. I think the hashtag was great in sense of survivors and people that have been experiencing this right. coming out and feeling more empowered. But one critique I think I have for the hashtag currently, right, mm -hmm. in our current state in the social media world is right. how are we utilizing this, mm -hmm. right? Is it really necessary for survivors to kind of regurgitate or reveal or expose their experiences. Right. And to what, what extent? What is that doing? And to what end? To what end? Because yeah. the reality is that this is not uncommon. Mm -hmm. We know that there are survivors around us. And even if we don't know, that that is also a lie. That's mm -hmm. ignorance is bliss, right? Right. So to what extent are we going to utilize survivors' stories as a way to say, hey, this is our marketing tool? What right. are we going to do now? What's what is what is the next action step? How right. do we hold accountability? Why share stories if it's just going to stay a, stay a story? How do we hold accountability? I think some people, the, for some people, the Me Too campaign was sort of a, oh, this is something I can do, like quickly, like yeah. this is just something that I can do that makes me feel like I'm not just sitting by and letting this thing happen in the world. Yeah. But you're saying, you know, there are other steps, like you can go further. There are other things, you know, if you're interested in going further, there are things you can do. What can people do? Absolutely, I mean, I think one of the things that I all, that is always my go-to is mm -hmm. 
and it's unfortunate, but this is the reality, is for spaces that is that are doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. The advocacy work, the the counseling work for survivors, we need money. Yeah. Donate, right? Or volunteer. Mm -hmm. If you know that there are these spaces around, go access these spaces. They're very accessible. Right. Check it out and volunteer because there's no there's no reason why we can't have more advocates in this space. Right. Right. So I think it is great to have social media as a tool for folks who might be going through invisible disabilities that prevent them from stepping out and doing more. Totally mm -hmm. okay. Right. But for those that have the ability or capacity to do more, right. let's step out of that social media box because mm -hmm. social media, to be blatantly honest, can only go so far. Right. We need policy reform. We need folks within the criminal justice system doing reform. We need people that are advocates that are going to go out. We need council members. Right. We need everyone. We need our communities. Yeah. If communities are not willing to talk about the stigmas attached with sex, sexuality, and sexual violence, mm -hmm. how are we going to utilize social media proactively and efficiently? Right. Right. So there are steps we can take that steps outside of the hashtag. Yes, absolutely. And when you talk about um, stigma and sexual violence, one of the things that I think about, of course, is the fact that, you know, yes, there are women being assaulted. Um, there are also men assaulting. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with them? What do we do with, you know, these men who, you know, like, by some measures might look like upstanding, normal, everyday guys, or they might be going through a hard time or whatever it is, and then they do this terrible thing, and they need to be held accountable, but there's something else there, right? Like they, in a lot of cases, they also need to be, I don't know, helped. They need to be like, you know, someone to help them understand like what happened here. Um, and also just like society at large. Like how are we having those conversations of not just women don't get raped, but men don't rape? Right, yeah, absolutely. I think it requires a certain type of cultural paradigm shift, right? The way we utilize language, the way we hold folks accountable. Mm -hmm. I did some work um, a couple of years back for a couple of years where I did work directly with sex offenders, perpetrators, also mm -hmm. batterers of domestic violence, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the approaches we took was, one, acknowledge that you did commit a crime. Right. You created or you committed a crime there was an act of violence. Mm -hmm. Accept that, acknowledge that. Now let's move beyond that, right? right? And moving beyond that is a sense of rehabilitation. Right. How do we take perpetrators or offenders and create them functional advocates within society? Right. Because boxing them in and saying, hey, you're a rapist, that's not as helpful. Because right. then what happens with the mentality of these offenders is that I'm a rapist, I'm a rapist, no one's going to accept me. Right. So for them to step out of that box, mm -hmm. right, we need to let them know what it feels like to be a survivor in a sense. What right. have they done to the person? What have they done to their victims? Right. Um, and it's, it's possible. Of course they have to, you know, go through the consequences of their actions, but we right. also need to do rehabilitation so that they can be activists. Absolutely, and I agree with that. Um, thank you so much for coming on here and for having this conversation. It's such an important conversation. Um, I hope it continues into the lives and homes of the people who are watching and listening. Thank you for having me. Next, wrapping up our coverage of Sandy, for this year anyway, with a happy-go-lucky musician who was having a blast in New York, playing drums on Pringles cans. That is, until his luck changed. Mm -hmm. 
When Sandy struck five years ago, it was indiscriminate, sort of. It hit people all across the borough, but low-income areas were often hit worse. That includes artists, who often need cheap rent and lots of space. That was the case with our next guest, who lost nearly everything in the storm. He's here to tell us about his experience and how he bounced back. Thomas Vida, thanks for joining us on 112. Thanks for having me here. First of all, I just wanted to ask, wh why did you open the studio? What was your vision for it? Initially, um, I'm a musician myself, so mm -hmm. I, I've seen the struggle finding proper rehearsal spaces and uh, production spaces for musicians in general. Mm -hmm. I had one of those guys, you know, that, you know, we had spaces, but was always limited uh, access to it. So I figured, why don't we open a 24-7 space that musicians can access to? And um, that was pretty much in mind, you know, right. and of course, make it affordable. Right, and where was it again? It was, we were on 9th Street at, uh, between Smith Street and 2nd mm -hmm. Avenue um, at the Gowanus Canal. Yeah, the, so right uh, there. The uh, official first location, yes. Right. Um, so when you initially heard about Superstorm Sandy coming, were you worried? Were you like thinking that it could affect you the way it did or were you kind of, you know? I was worried and I made sure my tenants are worried too because right. I knew it's, it's going to be a hit. Right. Um, of course, not everybody listened. I, mm -hmm. I told them, guys, uh, watch your valuables, take them out if necessary, put them upstairs somewhere. Uh, we're going to get hit. The problem was always, that street always flooded. Right. Initially. So, <laughs> so people were kind of like, uh, oh, it floods out. I, I was expecting, you know, not two foot, but you know, three, four feet of water right. possibly coming into the building. Right. So, and I warned businesses around me too, mm -hmm. which uh, was actually the main problem, right. are the water getting into the space. So what did it end up looking like once Sandy had come through, once you got, like, once you were able to see exactly what had happened in the studio, what did the studio look like? It was, it was devastating. I mean, yeah. think about having salt seawater coming in combined with the beautiful Gowanus water. Yeah. yeah. So it was toxic and salty. So anything that water touched, the equipment considered damaged. Because right. you can't wash it out, it's salt, you know, it, it penetrates through everything, right. plus the toxicity of the uh, other water, of the mixture. Um, and considering that the water mainly came from other businesses in, into right. my spaces, I sealed right. my area as much as I could, mm -hmm. but... Uh, it but was it a got in. It got in, 10-foot surge through uh, wood shops, metal. Right. Um, metal fabricators oh, <laughs> broke through walls and doors, and uh, it was imagine. a terrible scene. The, the guy from uh, neighbor business sent me some pictures. I'm like, look, this is the water level. I couldn't recognize the space. Yeah, you know it looked I mean? completely different. How did yeah. you get into the rebuilding process, though? Like, how did that work for you? Um, luckily, um, the paparazzi wasn't seen. You know, we got mm -hmm. into a couple of papers. And uh, one of the owners of Acumen Capital uh, read an article about uh, the damages and the losses I had, and gratefully offered me some temporary spaces. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And that's how it happened. Actually, 
the next month. It happened end of October. Mm -hmm. In December, we were already rebuilding it, and in January, we already had some spaces open. Wow. I was able to help out the musicians, you know, that they lost their spaces in, uh, at, at our old space. And, uh, you know, we just kept growing in, in mm -hmm. that area and uh, helped as much as I could. Well, how are things now? Things are, are very good. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, at the, with Sandy, we lost 25 rooms. Mm -hmm. Over the course of two or three years, we were able to rebuild those 25 rooms and actually build another 25 rooms Excellent. on two locations now to help the community and, and still offering great rehearsal spaces. Now, um, in the last two years, I was also able to open a recording studio. Right. Um, which also a new aspect of the business with uh, the difficulties, but you know, also trying to help the local community with That's affordable uh, recording uh, structures. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Thomas, yeah. for being here. Tomas, yeah. I want to make sure I say that right. Tomas, thank you so yes. much for being here. You're I really appreciate it. And I'm so glad you were able to rebuild and get everything back together yeah. and keep contributing to your community. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you, dear audience, for joining us as we get up to cruising speed with this new show. I'm really enjoying being here, and I hope you are too. As always, please let the night sleepers know they can catch the show on SoundCloud. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our audio engineer is Eric Haugesen. Executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.